another episode of this podcast. Sticking with trying to be topical and not yet diving into sensitive, charged political topics, let's talk about something that in some cases you would think might be politically charged, but it's not, or at least hasn't appeared to be yet. That is the pullout raising of Afghanistan. Now, it's really easy to explain, right? We've been in Afghanistan, by we, I mean the United States and some allies, doing some military things for 20 years. Starting with the very first raid on some places, um, not more than just a few weeks, maybe even just a few days, after September 11th. And this podcast is not a history on prosecution of the war on terror in Afghanistan. It's not a history lesson on Asia or the Middle East from a political standpoint either. Right? We're just going to discuss, to the extent that we can, this decision to bring all the troops home and essentially cease operations in the country or in the country of Afghanistan in as much isolation as we can. And so, first of all, we kind of need to do some shared understanding of what, what what was going on there. And what are we even bringing back? Some people don't even know, right? And the reason that I say that is there's some, there's some polls that went out, and, you know, polls are whatever in terms of value, but they are at least some indication of at least the people who were polled and how they think. And so, a number of people would ask, I don't know how many they were asked, whatever, you can look it up if you're interested, know the real numbers. But, the consensus was that no one really had a strong opinion one way or the other, whether pulling out of Afghanistan was the right move or pulling out was the wrong move. In fact, most people said they don't even follow the news in Afghanistan right now. Anyway, the uh, war against ISIS, and then Syria really took over the I don't want to say news cycle, but sort of the focus of our military operations uh, as a country there for, for quite a while until we pulled out of Syria, air quotes, um, during the Trump administration. Right? We still have people going to places like Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Jordan, probably even some people on the ground still in Syria, who knows, probably still in Turkey in places doing things prosecuting whatever missions that we are still doing in Syria. Um, and then right, we're doing some up in Africa. Africa was recently briefed to be the most dangerous haven for terrorists right now, and not, you know, Afghanistan or the Taliban or things like that. So, the state of affairs in Afghanistan, very loosely, was this. We had, you know, between 2,000, 3,000 troops in country, officially recognized, at least, mainly doing a training and support mission for the Afghan government, or at least the recognized Afghan government. Um, you know, and that would involve assisting in combat occasionally. It's hard to say exactly how much we were doing this, and you can go and read the reports, right? If you really want the details, the details really aren't that to this discussion. The bottom line is we were occasionally doing things, but we weren't holding territory. We still had a couple bases there. 
But as far as combat operations, the scope was very limited. And we weren't, you know, trying to still drive the Taliban out of certain places. We weren't doing that, bringing in expeditionary units and then setting up convoys, all of those kind of things that they think about when they think about the height of the Afghan war, the height of the Iraq war, that IEDs, and all of these things. And some might say what we really kind of done is fought to a standstill. And if you think about what that means, you got to put it in context, that is easily understandable from something that's understandable. If you think about like a, an old style continental European war, the muskets, like the Napoleonic Wars, what would fighting to a standstill mean? It means basically fight until you can't fight anymore, you withdraw to positions that you can easily defend, but yet you don't any longer have the ability to gain any military advantage over the situation. Right? And that doesn't mean you don't have the ability, should you have the will, to crush the enemy. You have lost, but you haven't won. Or at least, you haven't destroyed the enemy. Like, winning or losing isn't a very good set of vocabulary when defining battles. Even battles, like, great things like the Napoleonic Wars, or the Wars of the Civil War, or the Revolutionary War. Like, what is winning a battle with? I mean, because, right, there are certain battles where one army or you know, one force, they achieve their objective you know, in that battle, but they lost so many troops, used up so many of their supplies, equipment, sustained so many casualties and damage, that they literally could no longer fight as an organized force. So while they won the battle, they were essentially defeated as an army or as a force. They may still have held, you know, the fort that they were trying to capture or the fort that they were defending at the beginning of the battle, but they may have been so decimated that their ability to project power or repel any more attack or, or repel the same attack again is no longer an option or a reality. The winner of these are kind of dumb. Like, did they achieve their objective? Did they not? Right? The objectives shift. You no know, single battle has a single objective. Um, there are some initial battles of like the Waterloo campaign in Poland Wars where it's like they fought the big battles and some armies didn't treat and some objectives were achieved and other objectives won. So it seemed like these you know, big battles were fought, and no, but there wasn't really a winner or a leader. Um, right. So, language is important. And some people might disagree, but if the entirety of the United States decided that we were going to take over Afghanistan, we were going to treat it like Europe, World War II, we could do it. Um, cost a lot of money cost lives it's not a good human race right? that's not what aspiring to a standstill means means our chosen level of military our chosen level 
of military force is maintaining some sort of posture in the area and this balance of strength, balance of power is changing. That's kind of what stands still. The balance of power is not changing. It's not exactly the same thing as stalemate necessarily. Neither um, side really has the capability to change the situation on the ground at that moment. And this has been our decision, right? As a country, for a long time, we've down the number of troops we have in Afghanistan. We don't know what they're doing. And we had a certain amount of force in the region. And there was a number of benefits to that. Right? Really, the biggest cost in all kinds of terms having those troops in Afghanistan was really just the cost. The dollar amount that the American government was spending is to do whatever that they were doing. You know, we were occasionally suffering injuries. Some, you know, every once in a while there would be a death, usually from sort of a, a training accident or an aircraft crashing or something. You know, I don't know the last time there was a combat-related fatality in Afghanistan. Or one that was you know, directly U.S. forces fighting the Taliban, and someone did an Arabic that died. And I don't know the exact details on how you could look it up, but there are not a lot of them. Basically. So we kind of just had, I hate to say, 2,500 people was a token force. It was kind of a token force there. And that's why I stand up here to maintain American assets and American places in a safe posture and then carry out. You know, the limited mission that we were still doing there, which was almost like an observe and interdiction kind of mission. Like, we're not going to stop everything Taliban or Al-Qaeda or ISIS or who are all the other different players in Afghanistan, but every once in a while, you know, somebody doing something that raised enough concern or rose to a certain level, you know, that we would interdict. For the most part, it was just training and security. I was like, what are we getting out of it, right? And we don't, it's hard to say. The angle theory, this whole time that we had this female manning there, was that giving the Afghan government time. That's what we were buying with all this money that we were spending to have marriage over there. We were buying time. Time for the Afghan government to get strong enough, stable enough, to stand on its own and be able to fight or repel the Taliban. Because I don't think there's ever been any question that the Taliban has been waiting for us to leave. And we probably actually stayed there longer than they probably thought we would. Um, think about our history around the world, other than the movie, you know, we always go in and do these great things. We leave. So, President Biden makes a decision. Right? We're done. We're just done. Coming home. And people kind of, it was kind of like a sh- shoulder shrug of a response from home, right? Some people were like, about time. Let's bring people home. Let's be done with that crap. And other people were like, okay, cool. But I mean, it's, it's only 2,500 people, so it's not like a huge force that we're bringing home. And it's not like that money that we're spending there is 
going to go back to a tax day or to touch their pockets, right? It's, it's some cost for the most part. All those contingency funds that are in that account. <clears throat> from a practical standpoint, right, those contingency funds will now be shifted to other areas, but they'll kind of be being spent on the same thing as a different location. So from the average American standpoint, whether we've got 2,500 people in Afghanistan, you know, denying terrorists safe haven, for lack of a better term. And now we move all of that resources to, to Africa. Like, what's the difference, right? What, what's really the difference other than sort of the sentimental piece of about it being Afghanistan? No. But there was a number of people that don't like it from a military standpoint. I had a lot of number of generals who didn't like it. You can read a number of articles where you know, the Department of Defense, you know, I've been trying to obey the president to keep some people there for some reason. And I find that interesting a little bit, but there's a couple things that I think are important to note that when you have generals like this really opposing action to the president, what can you take away from that? Um, right, there's always sort of that snide, well, generals like war because their job is to work, makes their job more important. The general in peacetime is whatever, the general in wartime, right, it really goes down in history. So, we weren't in those conversations. We weren't privy to like the really sort of classified intelligence that dictates like what's on the ground, what's going to happen, what's Russia going to do, what's Pakistan going to do, what's China going to do, and Pakistan from our presence strong. Who fills that vacuum, and how does that play out, and what's the risk to the U.S. Right? So we don't know what was said. But some of it is kind of been reported that is a general nature. And really, the big risk is exactly. So they wanted to buy some time, and the president said, no, we had enough time, we're moving on. We're shutting this chapter down and moving on. Now, you know, it's probably going to be billed or collected on as a, as a democratic position because it was a democratic. President who did it, but you know, it's important to remember that President Trump wanted to do this. The generals asked him, asked to buy some more time, and, and he let him buy that time. You know, and then Trump in Syria was basically doing the same thing. Again, the generals asked for more time, and on that one, Trump said, No, like, you're not going to get all the time everywhere. Like, I'll give you Afghanistan, but you're not getting Syria. Might have been, uh, you have an opinion on maybe Trump should have let them have Syria pulled out of Afghanistan earlier. But that's not what happened. And so the question is, what do we think about this? Right? This is a non emotionally charged issue. It says really there's no political split. Republicans haven't come out and demanded that, you know, we leave troops there or we do this, or do X, or Y. And then, in fact, some Republicans, in fact, very much aligned with how President Trump was thinking. We're like, yeah, about time. Let's get out of there. Right? It's kind of a weird way that everyone, was, everyone except for the generals kind of agree. Um, now, this is what I'll say about the generals. Their concerns are probably actually political in nature. They probably see this pullout as a military operation, right, as they should, 
And a military operation should have a purpose. What is the purpose of us bringing this mission to an end? Right? They haven't really achieved um, a lasting goal, right? Or after we pull out, it won't be long before most of what we achieved could be unraveled very quickly. I think that's probably where they're coming from. Right, so all of that land and stuff that was used for training facilities and all that stuff, I mean, we've destroyed most of it, um, you know. And if the Taliban was going to allow, you know, these terrorist training camps to pop up again, they're going to do it differently this time, um, right? They're not going to do it where we can just hit them with cruise missiles and stuff. They're going to use the caves. They're going to understand, you know, where our weaknesses or our unwillingness to expose ourselves is, right, they're still going to use Pakistan, they're going to use that whole Badlands area, and it probably wouldn't be that much of a surprise if a year or two years from the last time that we were effectively able to conduct any enforcement missions in that country, the situation exists not that much different than it was before 9-11. Now, this is what we can say, is that before the attacks on 9-11, Afghanistan was still used as a terrorist training ground for a long time. And the U.S., you know, territory hadn't really been attacked, right? There was attacks, embassies, um, you know, ships, barracks, Saudi Arabia, you know, Tanzania, all these places. And none of those things triggered us to go into Afghanistan the way we did, the way actually attacking the United States territory did. And terrorists probably learned something from that, right? Because generally, terrorism isn't about achieving an end, right? It's about sowing instability. No one thinks that they can win a war through the means of terrorism, right? Terrorism doesn't give you control of a government, doesn't give you control of a land, doesn't give you control of resources, right? That's what ISIS learned. ISIS learned that we don't need to go just do suicide bombings and blow things up. We need to control territory, we need to control resources so we can have money. And then through that money, we can begin to influence the world. That's what ISIS learned. At least, you know, that's my words. Those are all my words. That's what I see when you see, you ever go learn about how ISIS came to be. They grew up out of that Iraq war, right? And, you know, one of probably the worst decisions, in my opinion, I'm not going to give a lot of my own opinions, but one of the worst opinions that the Bush administration did was just firing everybody who ever worked for the government in Iraq as soon as we took over. Right? I mean, you think, because just a, most of those people are just civil servants, right? They're just looking for a job, any job. It's not like every bus driver for the government in Iraq, you know, was beheading people or, you know, oppressing or doing violence or any of these kinds of things, right? They were just normal people, and then they were fired, and because they had worked for the government before, they didn't have other jobs, so then you have this whole class of people who were either former Iraqi military or former Iraqi government people. They knew the nation. They knew the cities. 
and they had nowhere to go. And, you know, out of that sort of chaos grew up an organization of essentially former Iraqi government people in some form that you know, used sort of a propaganda and sort of a creed to build their own nation. And I think what that shows you is that they've learned. And by they, I mean type of people who want to become terrorists in the first place, right? They're all motivated by certain things. And there's all these different psychologies out there about terrorists. You know, I think we can be absolutely clear that there is a difference in motivation between an Islamic terrorist and their desire to harm the United States and, you know, a domestic terrorist in this country. And I don't want to go down that road because right now I think the language is getting very loose in what we refer to as domestic terrorism and how it relates to some of these different protests and rioting and largely First Amendment protected groups of different kinds that we have in this country. You know, we'll, we can do another podcast on that later. That's one of those charged issues that I don't want to get to just yet. And so, anyway, the point is, it doesn't seem reasonable to be fearful that the way Afghanistan existed prior to 9-11 and then the tax on them, it doesn't seem reasonable to expect that to happen the same way again. And because that's not likely to be the case, you know, that's not what we're really seeing going on in Africa, we don't need to do the same thing, right? We don't need to control Afghanistan the same way we did in 2003 and 4 and 5, because it's just not going to happen that way. Um, we've developed so much capability and understanding of how we fight these asymmetrical things, which we can then use. And so I think there's a, we haven't really heard this, but I think there's probably an understanding or at least a belief among a not enough top-level military planners that, you know, based on what we know now, we could do the same thing to destroy the Taliban terrorist training camp somewhere in Afghanistan. We could do it same, we would do the same thing today, whether we have 2,500 troops in Afghanistan or whether we have zero troops, right? We'll launch something from a carrier in the Gulf, maybe bombers from Diego Garcia, you know. That's what we would do. Would certain aspects of the mission maybe be easier? I mean, we're not launching B-1 bombers from Afghanistan, right? Not from those bases. Not anymore, right? So the capability, there's not a huge capability gap we're creating by moving those bases out of Afghanistan right now and bringing those people home. Because um, we're still going to have the capability. You know? Obviously, there would be certain pieces of capability that would be less efficient, probably. And that's probably what we're losing, is the ability to respond efficiently. We're not losing the ability to respond to Taliban action. This is going to be a long time before anybody challenges our air supremacy over Afghanistan. A long time. We're going to be able to do whatever we want there from long range for a long time. You know, we launch B-2 bombers and they fly literally around the world on 24-hour flights to bomb things. Um, so... It's not that not having somebody on the ground there is that big of a capability reduction. Now, like I said, it is some capability reduction, but again, it's more about probably the efficiency, not so much the capability.